what would it take for you to believe that God really existed? A personal testimony from a notorious sinner who has experienced an incredible conversion experience. A warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart. An unexplainable, still small voice boldly declaring the existence of God. Or how about being an eyewitness to a miraculous event which is scientifically unexplainable? Or, let me give you another option, and that is careful contemplation of a simple little phrase, the impossibility to the contrary. That's right. It's impossible for God not to exist. If he does not exist, then there is no way to account for the fundamental things that we take for granted. The laws of logic, the uniformity of nature, moral absolutes, the reality of beauty, and the list goes on and on. Stay tuned with us on Sinners and Saints as we answer Dawkins' critiques of the arguments for the existence of God and show you that he leaves unanswered the most important argument of all, the transcendental argument for God's existence. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an edge. All right, we're back here dealing today again with the God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, taking on what seems to be a significant part of his argument against God's existence, and that is that he says, basically, we don't have any arguments for God's existence. He says, I've got natural selection. I can show you that through small incremental steps over a long period of time, I can account scientifically for how reality got here. So, I have my evidence, and you have your invisible God. And in order to counteract that invisible God you have, you've come up with a whole series of philosophical arguments. And as Dawkins surveys those, he basically finds them all lacking. Interesting, he has a number of arguments here, but interestingly, he doesn't take on the most important argument against his position, that is the transcendental argument for God's existence. We're going to get into explaining that in a moment. Joining us as usual for our discussion is Reverend Moses Jambazian, Reverend Adam Kalustian, and I'm Pastor John Sautel. All of us are local pastors here in local churches in Southern California. Getting back to the Dawkins delusion here, he denies the existence of God, and he says, I have good reasons to say that God most probably is not an existing being, because you don't have any good evidence. You don't have any good arguments for his existence. And he takes on, in the beginning of this chapter, the traditional, or what we might call the classical arguments for God's existence. Most of them have their roots in Thomism or Aristotelianism. He takes on also the ontological argument from Anselm. We'll get into that in a moment here. But basically what he does is he begins by surveying these basic ones. I'm just going to take on uh, two, uh, two or three of them because there's no point in developing his criticisms on all five of the arguments that he unfolds here as classical arguments. He begins with the teleological argument. He basically says, okay, that, that argument says basically the world looks like it is designed, therefore... It must have a designer. That designer is God. Closely uh, allied to that would be the cosmological argument. Every effect has a cause. The world is an effect, therefore God is its cause. Well, John, let me give you a grid in which I think we want to analyze 
these arguments themselves and also Dawkins' critique of these arguments. I mean, I think we would agree with Dawkins that absent of other information, absent of other arguments, or from our perspective, in an irrational, fundamentally irrational worldview, these arguments are not evidence, not good evidence, not good arguments for the existence of God. Our point is that the philosophical underpinnings of the atheistic worldview are themselves philosophically incoherent. So any kind of a rational worldview, okay, one that consistently can account for the preconditions of experience and science and logic and morality, then within that worldview, these arguments all are very persuasive. Okay, well, let's take it back here. Because I think what you point out here is, is where we need to go. Dawkins, in his criticism of these arguments, isn't entirely off base. For instance, we talked about this a little bit last time in our last show on natural selection and so forth, the Ultimate 747 Project, and that is that the argument from design has a fatal flaw, and that fatal flaw is, apart from a Christian theistic worldview, then is that, well, okay, if everything is designed by a designer and God's the designer, well, the question that you're going to immediately ask is, well, who designed God? Yeah, see, now, That's, right. that's the worldview question you're talking Let about Let me ask here. you a question. Let's let's talk this out over the air because I know we always talk about it off the air and it's interesting to a lot of people. You say there's a fatal flaw in the cosmological argument or the teleological, the teleological argument. argument. Okay. See, I, I'm uncomfortable with that language because flaw means that somehow it's wrong. What I'm wondering is if, if we if we phrase it differently, if we say that absent of the transcendental argument for the existence of God or absent from a rational worldview, which is the Christian theistic worldview, then yes, those arguments are unpersuasive. But see, I don't think, for example, it, it is true and it is persuasive that the appearance of design in the universe points to the designer who is God. Now, somebody may right. say, well, uh, you know, if you don't assume the truth of the Christian worldview, it's not persuasive and therefore the argument is flawed. I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, just because somebody denies it, somebody's whole worldview is false and flawed, and then therefore they don't, you know, find these arguments persuasive, doesn't mean that objectively these arguments are not persuasive and How, good witnesses however, to the true God. However, th although they may, at the end of the day, gabble down the foolish nonsense that there is no God, they're far from proving the Christian God. Because even, like, Dawkins will say, okay, oh, fine, he'll say, let's just, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that God does terminate the infinite regress, and he is the ultimate designer or the ultimate cause. It still yet does not attribute to him any of the normal attributes which we give God. Omniscience, omnipotence, goodness, love, compassion, wrath, whatever. It, it just says there's a force, right? And so what, what I think he's pointing out here is, is the weakness which you can see in these arguments if, if you just think about well, them by for weakness, a while. They I do guess not you mean fill it up with, they do not fill up the proof with Christian content So you yet. mean incomplete, basically, yeah, so by they, flaw. These right. arguments so in, are de in, interdependent and interrelated with each other. That's how I would try to like... Okay, that makes sense. So it. right, if somebody's, if somebody's, say, giving the cosmological argument or the teleological argument for the existence of God solely, so not part of a broader apologetic then it is incomplete and flawed in that sense. But there are also problems with these as well from a philosophical point of view. For instance, Hume points out very well in his critique of human, or his inquiry concerning human understanding is he points out that we don't have any reason philosophically to assume the principle of 
uniformity. He argues just because in our experience it seems like B is caused by A, he says we have no rational or philosophical justification for accepting that that will happen into the future. Right, because, of course, nobody has ever experienced or tested all possible contingencies in the world. So, in in a sense, there is a philosophical weakness even in the cosmological argument without other, other reinforcement. Right, which is, of course, our major argument for the existence of God, the transcendental argument for his existence, that apart from the personal God as the foundation, the precondition of all intelligible experience, science, logic, and morality, none of that makes any sense in a stable whatsoever. We can't account for any of it. What's interesting about that is that basically if if you want to, to find out what are the origins of this whole transcendental argument question, you have to go back to another skeptical philosopher who was Kant. And Kant was trying to answer Hume. He was unsatisfied with where it leaves us and where it leaves rationality if we accept what Hume's criticisms, which he believed uh, appeared to be philosophically coherent. And so he said, okay, rather than being skeptical like Hume is, that just because we haven't investigated every possible future incident where A may not be the cause of B, let's do something different. Let's presuppose that there is something which holds this reality together, some sort of glue. And basically what Kant said was that the mind imposes categories upon reality. And so it's inescapable that we're always going to find that A... Uh, causes B because the human mind is always doing that. Now that is not sufficiently that's not sufficiently coherent to explain for how that's always going to happen. But what Van Til does, a, uh, a reformed philosopher and apologist in the 20th century, is he begins to build on this kind of a, of an idea that we need some great mechanism or some great philosophical premise or principle or presupposition to account for these things because he says we all have to assume that the laws of logic are uniform we have to assume in the universality of these laws but it's not just that we all have to do it but it's that we all do do it and this is one of the points we brought out last time in our critique of the the ultimate 747 gambit right because dawkins can say make all kinds of statements, make all kinds of assertions which assume the uniformity of nature, which assume the coherence of the laws of logic, the stability of the laws of logic, even if he comes around to deny uh, them or deny the God who is the foundation of them. But everybody lives that way. Nobody can get outside, for example, of morality. You know, Even though there's no foundation in, the, in Dawkins' right. worldview for the standard morality, they still live that way. That's why when we say the transcendental argument, it is the impossibility of the contrary. But let's, let's, let's be clear about this, and this is something you brought up just briefly. It, it's not just that we all rely upon the universality of the laws of logic. It's not just that we all operate as if there was such a thing as the uniformity of nature or their ethical absolutes. It is factually true. It is factually true that the law of non-contradiction is a valid, logical, universally binding principle. It is true that A is not A and not A at the same time in the same relationship. It is, it's true. You can't deny that. It's, but now the question is why? And that's what the, the transcendental argument helps you account for, is why in the world... Is it that things are like they are? And as we talked about this on our last show on the Ultimate 747 Project is, the natural selection just does not account for that at all. It merely assumes it. And now, so we need something bigger than natural selection 
or all the naturalistic theories of evolution to account for all the things that they're assuming, which are these laws of logic and uniformity of nature and so forth. Maybe we better state this clearly again because it, it's crucial for our understanding of, of critiquing the atheistic worldview or critiquing the inconsistency of other theistic worldviews. It's this transcendental argument for the existence of God. And I'm going to read to you a quote from what's called the Great Debate. It's between uh, the deceased uh, Dr. Greg Bonson, who was a great champion apologist for the Christian faith, and, and an atheist named uh, Dr. Gordon Stein. I just want to quote from one of the places in the debate where Bonson most clearly articulated this transcendental argument, and you want to really get a handle on this. We can prove the existence of God from the impossibility of the contrary. The transcendental proof for God's existence is that without him, it is impossible to prove anything. The atheist worldview is irrational and cannot consistently provide the preconditions of intelligible experience, science, logic, or morality. The atheist worldview cannot allow for laws of logic, the uniformity of nature, and the ability for the mind to understand the world and moral absolutes. Unquote. So in this sense you see, the atheistic worldview denies by its very argumentation its own conclusions. It's like somebody walking around breathing air in order to speak and saying, I am not breathing air and I am not speaking. By what comes out of them, they are refuting the conclusions that they are attempting to draw. That is the transcendental argument for the existence of God. And there's a flip side to this too, and that is when you when you utilize this particular argument in in argumentative situations, say between yourself and an unbeliever, is that uh, the, the the negative side of this argument is to take on their worldview or their presuppositions about reality. And in this case, and in, I think in most cases you're going to come across today, people are going to have a naturalistic worldview. Well, things just ex- just came about by a big bang, and so what you would do then is then you would say, okay, based upon these presuppositions, how can you account for uh, universality of the laws of logic? You say that um, something exists, and that that something that exists came out of nothing, which is already a logical fallacy, a logical violation. But then secondly, you say all this something randomly and by chance mutated, divided, changed, and so forth over time, and create this elaborate world in which we live. But ask yourself the question, how in the world can chance mutations and random collisions of molecules and chemicals create necessary universal laws of logic, which is what you need? How can they create causal relationships? You see, you need A to cause B if you ever want to do any inductive reasoning. And what is science? Science is basically inductive reasoning. It's looking at a whole a bunch of particular sets of things and making observations from them. That's the inductive reasoning. You cannot do that if things if A does not cause B. Well, somebody says, well, wait a minute. Don't you do the same thing? And we say, well, of course we do. But the question that we are asking is, what is the foundation for assuming and proceeding on the belief that nature is uniform, that A causing B, the next time you do A will also cause B. Now, we both agree on that principle. The difference is, in our worldview, the Christian theistic worldview, we have a philosophically 
coherent explanation or foundation for that belief. When you are making any kind of an argument, when you are sitting here listening to the show and considering the arguments for or against God's existence, you are believing that something is true and something is false, and you are expecting rational argumentation be presented from both sides. On what basis are the laws of logic consistent? Only the Christian theistic worldview can provide the foundation for that law, for those laws of logic, for the laws of induction, for the uniformity of nature, and at the same time in all the rest of its assertions remain philosophically coherent and consistent. No other worldview can provide that. Not, not atheism, not atheism, not any false religion. The negative side of this is same. You simply do not have any kind of justification philosophical justification for you even listening to an argument, seeing whether it follows any kinds of rules, and and accepting any kind of conclusions. You have no right to, you have no justification for thinking, observing, in, in, engaging in induction, doing nothing. You don't have a rational basis for it. That is why this argument is so powerful, and that's why it's the necessary context for all the other arguments that he offers. So let's bring it back to some of the other ones that he brings up here. The teleological argument. How does this transcendental argument fill in the context for making the teleological argument, the argument from design, have real explanatory power? Well, here's how, okay? I think that... We have to affirm what Dawkins says in the first place. Say, yeah, you know, the the universe, Dawkins admits, gives the appearance of design. So people give different arguments of why it's design, not design, whatever. When you examine Dawkins' arguments and you realize that they're self-refuting, that they don't provide a foundation for all of the logic that he is using to make his arguments for the uniformity of nature that he uses to make observations about Darwinian natural selection, when you realize that his attempt to explain design is self-refuting, then there you have it. You look at the Christian theistic worldview and you take the appearance of design at face value and you say, oh, there is the designer then. The heavens declare the glory of God. Some people will describe this in, in simple words like common sense. Open your eyes and look at the glories of the creation that are around you. Look at the, to the heights of the universe, the depths of wisdom, to the things down to the smallest detail. Look at the glory and the power and the wisdom and the intelligence that is displayed and see that it is by a designer. But, but let me just revisit something. You have to see that there's an interconnection here between these arguments. Uh, the, the teleological argument needs the transcendental argument. The transcendental argument, in a sense, needs the teleological argument. Here's why. The teleological argument, the argument from design, says that the world is made orderly, that the parts fit together, they cohere. They're distinct, and yet they fit together. That's, there's one, and there's many. There's laws, and there's facts. There's laws, and there's particulars. It's not just one big glob of goo. You see, the world is not one massive, undifferentiated blob. Bag of stuff. (laughs) It's distinct. Now, how you say, well, how does that prove that these arguments need to interrelate with each other? Well, here's why. Because the fact that a world could be coherently designed and have one and many objects and laws and all these particulars, but also universals, is that that is a reflection of the very being of God, in a sense. It's an analog of the being of God. God is one in many. God is a person. God is a being. God is distinct in three persons, but he's also, all those three persons are also one, which is a profound mystery, something that we really don't have deep insight 
into or understanding of, but we know that there is one and many. Well, reality reflects that then as well. The design that you see in reality is a reflection of the very, analogically, of the being of God. So these arguments supplement and interact with each other so that they kind of have more uh, persuasive explanatory power. You need these arguments, you need these arguments too, as well for the other ones. Now, one of the weaknesses, I think, of Dawkins' book, and you'll see this over and over again, is that he really doesn't spend much time interacting with his critics. It's interesting that generally he just says something and assumes that, well, every, every person who's uh, got a, a, you know, a glimmering of light in his intellect is going to understand that his position is irrefutably true, which is foolish, because if you've done any time uh, thinking or reading, you realize that there's all kinds of respectable people who just simply disagree with each other, and he doesn't ever take that into account hardly, this unless is, he finds somebody agrees with him. Right, and this is even true, by the way, in a lot of the scientific claims that he makes. Oh, a course. lot of his speculations about multiverse theory and what have you, uh, highly controversial. His particular understanding and explanation of some of the mechanics of natural selection are highly controversial. Sure. And of course, you'll find this to be true in general about the Darwinian camps. And of course, they tend to downplay that, saying that they all share the common premise. But it's interesting that the things that they're disagreeing over are fundamental to the upholding of the theory. But that's that would be a topic there's for another show. There's a lot show. of oversimplifying, and, and they just try to ignore the fact that there's a lot of disunity. So that's one of the things he does. Is he doesn't really interact with critics and he only usually cites on people unless they're favorable to his position or he picks, he picks out the, the most obvious stupid form of the opposition and brings it up. And you, but the other thing he does is he generally he, – very often he presents bad arguments from the other point of view, from the point of view he's trying to contest. And throughout this chapter, you, you see that, first of all, he begins with the proofs of Aquinas. And he spends probably the most time, in terms of the philosophical or classical arguments, on the ontological arguments. He does not refute the ontological argument at all. He just sits there and says it's frustrating and says it's a little kid's game of yes it is, no it isn't. I can think of something so great and, and therefore God exists. Right, he, which d- again, he diminishes it, which is a really intellectually dishonest way to deal with something that you disagree with. Right, and our argument to that, again, is going to be, apart from the transcendental argument for the existence of God, meaning apart from a rational worldview, the ontological argument for the existence of God is not persuasive. But it doesn't mean that the ontological argument for the existence of God is not valid and a good and a strong argument, because within a rational worldview, it is a very persuasive evidence for the existence of God. The majesty of God is written on the heart of every man, as God reveals in his word to tell us that that's true. He has left a witness of himself to every man, though they suppress that in their conscience, as the Apostle Paul tells us. Now, you may not be persuaded by that if you are engaged in an irrational worldview, if you are engulfed by an irrational worldview, but it doesn't mean that the argument's not persuasive. Okay, well, let's, let's carry on here, because this is something he continues. So he says, okay, he dismisses it. He can't really refute it soundly, but he brings it up and dismisses it and, you know, hymns and haws over it and says, you know, it's really lame, but he can't figure it out why. But then he brings up other arguments. This is something that's characteristic, as I've already said. He brings up sort of weaker arguments. And he presents a whole series of them. I'll just I'll bring out a couple of them. He says the argument from personal experience. Now, I'll grant you that if you go to your average fundamentalist evangelical church, you will have people making this argument. They hone and and shape their personal testimonies, and they wait till the time is just right with the lights turned down low, the emotions amped up, and the soft music playing in the background. And then here it comes. 
here comes the argument from personal testimony. Well, I used to drink, you know, two 12 packs a day and I was a loser. I squandered all my money and I beat my wife and I kicked my dog. But then I found Jesus and life's better. Now, he interestingly, he presents this in, in the flow of the chapter and he refutes the arguments from personal existence in here, uh, from personal experience. However, I would say this, just to come to this, my response would be, all right, I don't think that this is a profound intellectual argument. But if we're operating within God's world, and if God does really change people, here's what I would say, is that there is a a profound sense in which personal experience that people have, conversion experiences when they're lived out and they really do have a changed life, they do end up um, working in a sense to soften people's hearts to the truth. So I'm just showing there's an interrelatedness here. Maybe it's it's a bit of a stretch. And I'm also pointing out that he does take on the weak arguments, and I don't think that's a powerful one. He also has— I guess—well, I mean, John, I guess what you're saying is what—or what you're asking, you would ask the skeptic is, what is the philosophically coherent objection, the impossibility of using personal experience as— Maybe not overwhelming or dominating, but right. as some sort of proof of the existence of God's power in your life. I mean, you can say you don't like it and you don't find it persuasive, but it doesn't mean that it's not true. It doesn't in, disprove. In particular cases, right. And in a sense, I mean, what we would expect is if there was this omnipotent, powerful creator God out there who was who was a good God, a compassionate God, and a saving God, we would expect him to reach down into people's lives and, and make them different, too. So I— uh, through Christ and, and the message of redemption, it does work. So I'm just saying it, it fits with the overall argument. Uh, what else does he bring up? He's argument from admired religious scientists. He really downplays this argument as as kind of a weak one because he says, well, prior to the 19th century, everybody believed in God, or at least they, they had to because of all the social pressure. Therefore, this is a bad argument. Now, how would you respond to that one? My response to that would be at a certain point in the history of formal academic thought, the academy took a radical shift in its skepticism. Okay, so, I mean, on the other hand, I agree with Dawkins that many people who lived perhaps before the shift in the academy toward radical skepticism, I would agree with him that the people who were quote-unquote religious before were not all necessarily thoroughgoing uh, theistic Christians. So, no, I mean, I to no. me, it doesn't really matter uh, one way or the other. But I, you know what? I did find it to be somewhat ironic because, you know, one of the arguments that he keeps making in this book is that only the dumbest hayseed fool would believe in God, and uh, all and, and basically he's always bolstering him his his atheism by noting how all these wonderful all these scientists out there are all anti God. But you know, 150 200 years ago, just the opposite would be true. So I don't think you should be able to reinforce. Uh, your confidence in atheism by pointing to the prevailing climate today where scientists are all unbelieving, whereas when, when 200 years ago, it was just the opposite. I don't think that the subjective beliefs of scientists or so-called academic elites or smart people should should shift you one way or the other. It's sort of a sleight-of-hand trick. I think that's what it is. It's not a, it's not a substantive or profound argument. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, it, it just really reflects the the historical arrogance. You know, everybody in the modern world thinks they're smarter and more developed than everybody in in previous times anyway. And, of course, that's just completely consistent with the Darwinian idea of the world that he has anyway. We've evolved out of following all those stupid pagan myths and base forms of philosophy. We've evolved out of the 
time in which social pressure overwhelmed everybody to say they believed in God, whether or not they really did. I mean, as opposed to thinking like, no, actually, maybe Dawkins, some people before that radical shift of, of skepticism coming into the academy actually had good reason to believe in God. You know, you're not the first person who ever thought about anything, either in the philosophical realm or in the scientific realm. Yeah, but that's the same thing you kind of get throughout the smugness that nobody got smart until Darwin came along. The rest of them were just about to intellectually dishonest people. At any rate, those are the series of his arguments that he sets forth here. One that was not uh, here, which is which is absent by omission and glaringly so, is the argument against God's existence from the problem of evil. Now, Dawkins does mention this or reference it just in passing, and I thought his argument was fascinating, so I just share it with you here. He basically says that the argument for God's existence is really no sound argument against God's existence. He says the, the fact that there's evil in the world, and let's just say, let's just posit that a God did exist, doesn't disprove God. It just simply, he says, disproves a good God. So he says that has no no bearing on the issue of God's existence or uh, positive in 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 the in the on the side for atheism. So he doesn't even re- he doesn't even deal with the argument. Right. He probably would use that to say, all right, if you are able to prove that there's a God, we would then discount the Christian theistic understanding of God because there's an inherent contradiction, according to him, between an all powerful good God and the existence of evil. In the same way that we'd point to other religions that claim to believe in God, and they are incoherent philosophically. Of course, we have an answer to the so-called problem of evil, but I don't know if that's the point of this This is not the time to do it, and basically we're going to wrap up at this point. All we're just trying to show you is some of the ways in which uh, Dawkins is trying to disprove God's existence, and the fact of the matter is he misses the most profound and logically coherent argument of all for the existence of God. And the one reason why he will not touch that argument is maybe just ignorance, but if he even was aware of it, he couldn't take it on because he himself knows he has no way to account for the universality of the laws of logic, for the uniformity of nature, and for ethical or moral absolutes. There's no way to found those upon a worldview which is steeped in natural selection and chance happening of random colliding molecules being the cause of the reality which we see around us today. There is a valid, sound, overwhelmingly persuasive argument for God's existence, and that's the impossibility to the contrary, and I want you to think about that. Thank you for staying tuned with us on Sinners and Sinners. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge.